Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. The series is brought to you by Chagask in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, uh, the National Rural Network, and Food Drink Ireland. And this morning we have Porik Foley, technologist with Chagask, uh, assisting us with the questions today. Good morning to you, Porik. Good morning, Mark. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Great. And uh, we're just, I just today, I suppose what we're going to be talking about is high nature value farmland. And the Irish Parliament, uh, as we know, has declared a climate and biodiversity emergency and has identified the need to move towards more sustainable land use production and consumption practices. And so today we'll be discussing high nature farmland uh, in Ireland and its role in combating climate and biodiversity challenges. And we're delighted to be joined by Dr. James Morn, who is lecturer in ecology and biology and leader of the Agroecology Research Group at Galway Mayo Institute of Technology. Good morning, James. How are you today? Morning, Mark. How are things? And good morning, everybody. You're very welcome to the Signpost series. I know you've been uh, tracking uh, our progress over the last year, and it's uh, great to have you here presenting uh, today. So you're going to be speaking to us about uh, high nature uh, value farmland. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in GMIT? Well, in, in GMIT, I work on the agriculture and environment management uh, programs generally. So a large portion of my time is uh, teaching the students. They spend their, their first two years in, in Mount Bellew Agricultural College and then come on to us in the Galway campus then. So I teach uh, them about agriculture and the environment and their interactions and sustainable agricultural practices and then a large proportion of my time is also spent on the, the research policy and, and practice side. So as well as the, the, the knowledge transfer, we try to make sure that the knowledge that we're transferring to the students is up to date and based on sound evidence base. So we try and gather as much information as we can through our various research programs, working with various partners around the country. But also we try and translate that into policy and practice on the ground with a range of programs as well. You're no stranger to Chagas either, James, are you? No, no, we have worked together before, Mark, so we have, yeah, yeah. I was in Chagas during our times on the, the Burn Life programme, so when Chagas was a partner in the, the Burn Life, I was uh, the, responsible for that, so we spent uh, many a long hours working in meetings and working together over, over the years, so I spent five happy years in, in Chagas before I uh, transferred on to the, the wide world of academia. So I, I was trained in Chagas and in the private sector before that as well. Very good, very good. So James, we'll hand over to you and uh, we'll chat to you afterwards. All right, good morning everybody. So today, as Mark pointed out, I want to talk about uh, high nature value farmland and uh, particularly look at the question in terms of what its role is in terms of combating the climate and biodiversity challenges that we face uh, as a society in, in, in general. So what I want to do is, within 30 minutes, a bit challenging, but try to go through 20 years of, of work on high nature value farmland in Ireland, looking at the, the, the research in, into high nature value farmland that has been conducted, but also with a focus on how we can improve policy and, and practice and the work that's been going on in, in these areas over the last 20 years. I'll try and focus a bit on what ecosystem services this type of land provides, and in particular, looking at how we actually realize value from the production of these ecosystem services, mainly through our work on results-based payment schemes. And I will be highlighting a number of challenges throughout the, the presentation, but I hope you will see that we are 
trying as much as possible to come up with uh, solutions as well. And I'd outline our proposals for the, the cap green architecture. Now, I know I'm saying we and our uh, a lot. So what am I talking about when I say uh, we and our? Essentially, this is the agroecology uh, and rural development uh, research group at uh, GMIT. We work across GMIT and uh, IT Sligo. So this is, a, I've been presenting the work of uh, my colleagues uh, in this uh, presentation, but also the work to date on high nature value farmland in Ireland is the combined work of a range of project teams and partners over, over a number of decades across the country. And we're also assisted by a network of friends and colleagues across the European Union working in this area. And over the last 25 to 30 years, the high nature value farmland concept has matured and been incorporated into the common agricultural policy. But substantial challenges uh, remain for these diverse cultural landscapes, which encompass some of the most important nature areas and cultural landscapes in, in Europe and in Ireland. So when I say we, it's a lot of the, what I'm presenting is informed by discussions over many years with colleagues working on a wide diverse range of projects across a number of universities, institutes, uh, farmer partners and uh, community groups as well. So the scale of the challenges, I must iterate at the start, cannot be underestimated when it comes to trying to move towards sustainable agriculture and forestry systems in general. Globally, agriculture has made significant gains in agricultural productivity in recent decades in particular, but this has come at significant social and environmental cost. As Mark pointed out, the government has declared a biodiversity and climate emergency in, in May 2019 in recognition of these challenges. And climate change and the biodiversity crisis are interrelated problems. They threaten our food security and the sustainability of our agricultural systems. Our agricultural systems is both the driver of climate change and biodiversity loss, but also one of the areas that would be most affected by these interrelated challenges. And just to emphasize the importance of biodiversity, it underpins our production system. We're dependent on pollination, nutrient cycling, soil structure, pest control, and the regulation of water supply is dependent on our biodiversity and its, its health. But biodiversity in general is undervalued in our agricultural production system and policy framework. Also in terms of setting the scene, I want to look a bit closely at the state of nature in Ireland and the interactions with, with agriculture. Just to reiterate here, all the monitoring shows that 85% of our uh, monitored habitats are in unfavorable conservation status, with 46% of these showing a, a declining trend. In particular, in an agricultural context, large areas of semi-natural vegetation are completely undervalued in the policy context. And this has been reflected in the monitoring of our semi-natural grasslands. More than 30% of the area monitored has actually been lost in the last uh, 10 to, to 15 years. Uh, this has led to further declines in farmland birds, such as corncrake, yellowhammer, and, and lapwing, for example, but also declines in species that are dependent for nutrient cycling and pollination, such as our bees and butterflies and, and insects in general. We have no clear policy or land use targets for high nature value farmland. We have legacy issues when it comes to, to land use uh, planning and land use targeting of forestry, for example, and inadequate policy responses uh, to date. However, it's not all bad news. We have positive moves. We have locally adapted pilots. We have improvements in our land use policy. We have results-based payment systems for biodiversity trialed in many different areas across the country. So I'd like to say at this stage, we have the threats identified. 
we have also the solutions identified, but we have issues maybe around the, the scale of, of implementation. Taking a closer look uh, at, at the Irish uh, landscape, uh, this is some of the work we just published er earlier on this year. The, the landscape of the, of the country is very diverse. It ranges from intensified lowlands to extensive mountainous areas with a wide range of land uh, types in between. These are all characterized by differences in geology, topography, soils, climatic variation and, and land cover with a wide variation in land use uh, capacities. Now, the basis of our land use practice and, and policy when it comes to must be a fundamental realization that all land cannot be all things to all people. One size does not fit all. I think I'm stating the obvious here, but lift different land types uh, function differently and are advantaged to provide a set of particular uh, services. And this diverse land base pr provides a range of ecosystem services that society depends on. Without these ecosystem services, we are not, uh, humans do not survive. And to sustain current and future generations, we need our land base to provide food, fiber, production support services, such as pollination, pest control and nutrient cycling. And we also need it to regulate our water and carbon storage and provide space for recreation, tourism, and contribute to our human health and well-being in general. However, our economic system only values a small proportion of these services. And as a result, we have an undersupply of non-market services or the, these public good ecosystem uh, services. So from now on, I've sort of set the scene there in the, the first six or, or, or seven minutes. Now I want to concentrate on high nature value, value farmland for the rest of the presentation and what are what is the role of this type of farmland in a broader sustainable food system. So these are the areas where low intensity agriculture practices maintain or contribute to a high level of, of biodiversity, high nature uh, value. This low intensity farmland across Europe is characterized by the presence of high proportions of semi-natural vegetation. So we have semi-natural grasslands, wetlands, peatlands, heathlands, hedgerows, scrub and woodland, and a diversity of land cover and, and land uses. Traditionally, this would have been referred to as marginal agricultural land, but in a modern multifunctional agricultural policy, this is referred to as high nature value farmland. And in general, it occurs along a gradient from natural habitats, unfarmed far, farmed areas and natural uh, woodland systems, uh, for example, all the way through in this gradient to intensive farmed simple landscape. And essentially the high nature value farmlands are these ones here in, in, in the middle. Everything for low to, to medium intensity between the most intensive areas and the, the natural uh, unfarmed uh, areas. So these areas are recognized as important cultural landscapes across uh, Europe. And they usually only persist in marginal agricultural areas of Europe, which have significant natural constraints on the intensification of land use. So areas with poor soils, steep slope, high altitude, uh, unfavorable uh, weather uh, conditions, uh, for, for example. As opposed to characterizing this farmland as marginal land, when just we just value land on food production potential alone, it can all alternatively be described as high nature value farmland. And the definition of this in a European context is areas in Europe where agriculture is a major 
uh, land use and where agriculture sustains or is associated with either a high species and habitat diversity or the presence of species of European conservation importance. So these are agricultural lands dependent on uh, uh, farming uh, practices. Focusing on, on the Irish uh, system, we know that agriculture has shaped the landscape of Ireland for, for millennia. And today we see significant variation in land types uh, across the, the country, as illustrated by this work that we carried out a number of years ago with Chagas, funded by the, the Department of, of Agriculture, where we mapped the extent and characterized uh, high nature value farmland. So in this study, we modeled the potential distribution of high nature value farmland using data on land cover, farming intensities and soil diversity, for example. We see substantial diversity across the country in terms of the nature value of our agricultural systems, very similar to the, the rest of, of, of Europe. And ranging from the intensive production on fertile land with high inputs to very extensive uh, farming systems on marginal land with low inputs. And it's this low intensity farmland, which is natural constraints on food production, it's extremely valuable for both biodiversity, landscape and, and cultural values. And this can provide a whole host of, of ecosystem services. We have found that this high nature value land covers approximately a third of the agricultural area of Ireland. We have a third that's uh, medium and a third that's, that's essentially low nature value, but high production uh, potential. Of the areas within high nature value farmland areas, 50% of these are designated as Natura 2000 areas, so special areas of conservation and special protection areas. So recognized as some of the most important nature areas in uh, Europe. And approximately 50% are in uplands and another half are in, in lowland areas. <clears throat> Generally, what we find in these areas, they have this dual threat of both abandonment on the one hand and intensification of land use and land use conversion on, on the other uh, hand. And often we see this on, on the one farm. Uh, when farms are, are struggling to make a, a full-time income from, from farming, you have to have an off-farm job. When you have an off-farm job, you have limited time availability. So then sometimes the, the farming activity is concentrated on, on the, the more manageable areas of the farms, the lowland areas around maybe the farmyard in close proximity to the farmhouse. And other areas, maybe in, in uplands, might be abandoned. So even on the one farm, you can have this dual threat of abandonment and in intensification. Just to show you some examples of this diverse agricultural landscape and what it actually looks like in, in photographs, we see many areas, extensive upland areas of the country will be classified as high nature value farmland. These are dominated by blanket bog, heaths and, and upland grasslands. And many of these are managed uh, as, as common land or, or commonage. We also have in, in parts of the country, the semi-natural vegetation that is in upland areas to the east extends all the way down to sea level in, in the west and along our offshore uh, islands as well. And also we have this series of interconnected semi-natural features across the agricultural landscape of Ireland. So our, our hedgerow network, our areas of small woodland interspersed with, with semi-natural grassland as well. So this agricultural mosaic landscape with high diversity of semi-natural features would also be characterized as, as high nature value farmland. So I want to give you some examples now that we've set the scene of some of the research we carry out in these areas. So, as a research group in particular, we have worked on a number of research projects in high nature value farmland areas over the years, 
including uh, identifying their extent and quantifying their nature value, as I showed in some of the, the previous slides. But we also devote a significant proportion of our time within our group to try to identify appropriate measures for agri-environmental climate measures under the, the common agricultural policy. So I presented the mapping outcomes uh, previously, and now I just want to concentrate uh, on examples from our farm ECOS project with uh, Chagas, NUI, Galway, Trinity, DCU, and uh, ourselves in, in GMIT. In this project, we did not exclusively look at extensive high nature values uh, farmland systems. We looked at the, the issues across the gradient from low intensity to high intensity farming systems to try and identify appropriate agri-environment measures in these various uh, contexts. And first of all, in any of these diverse farming systems, we need to understand the potential of these various land types to produce uh, different services in terms of what quantities of food they can produce, the quality, the, and how management interacts with the production of other services, such as uh, space for, for nature, pollination, pest control, for example, carbon storage. So this, this system is once we model and understand what services they can provide, we try and come up with simple scoring systems that can be used as a basis for paying farmers for delivery of these ecosystem services and development of actions and recommendations which can enhance the overall quality of our agricultural landscapes to meet the range of societal needs and challenges. So this is just an example. We selected two catchments uh, to look at intensively, one in the southeast and one in the northwest of the country with this range of land use uh, intensities. So we can see in, in this, this map here, generally speaking, the land use intensity goes from intensive farms here in the, the north of the catchment, moving it through the, the, the foothills right into upland areas. And we move from high intensity dairy and beef production systems in this particular catchment, all the way through to extensive upland beef and sheep systems in the upland areas. And we see a change in the land use cover between these different farm settings. One area dominated by intensely managed grasslands with networks of, of hedgerows and, and field margins, and the other one dominated by these extensively managed semi-natural grasslands and, and heathland areas. We then, once we mapped these, these catchments, we then modeled them. Uh, this, a lot of this work was led by Sarah Ruiz within our, our group, and the models she produced a range of ecosystem services, including maps of the habitat quality, pollination, carbon storage, and also the, the food and, and fiber, fiber production. Now, this slide is just various maps with, with different, different colors, but it shows examples of the model outputs. And as you move from the colors pink through yellows to blues, you see higher quantities of the particular ecosystem service uh, produced. For example, in this uh, carbon model here, uh, we see higher carbon storage values in the high nature value farmland areas dominated by semi-natural vegetation compared to the, the semi-natural, uh, compared to the intensely managed areas. On the other, on the other hand, looking at the other four services, we see in this, on the production side, the intensive land obviously producing an awful lot more uh, potential for food and fiber than the extensive uh, uh, managed areas. So there are some clear trade-offs and, and synergies between these different various ecosystem services. So just to summarize some of this uh, work, we see that in general, as habitat quality increases, we have more biodiversity, we have greater uh, pollination, and uh, more carb carbon storage. These all pretty much correlate with each other. 
but they have weak negative correlations with food and fiber production. Now, it's not a linear relationship. It's not always that biodiversity and pollination increase that food production de decreases. And some habitats can provide uh, uh, income from food production while having moderate uh, habitat quality uh, as well. But in general, we see semi-natural areas have the greatest potential to produce multiple non-food production ecosystem services. And this just gives a ranking of maybe some of the five common uh, farmland uh, land covers in relation to the ones that are highest for habitat quality, carbon storage and pollination services are the semi-natural grasslands, uh, uh, natural and semi-natural woodlands, heathlands and peatlands, hedgerows and treelands, and in commercial forest uh, plantations. But the ones that are highest for the food and fiber production are improved grasslands and tillage areas, commercial forest, semi-natural grasslands, heathlands and peatlands, and then the, the, the woodland areas, the non-production ones, uh, of, of course. Now, to me, this clearly illustrates that if we want all these services, which we do to sustain human populations, then we have to have clear targeting of land use, cognizant of these trade-offs and synergies, and essentially, we have to match the land use targets in any one area of the country, in any one farm, to the capacity of the land to actually produce these range of, of, of services. Uh, th that was the work of the, the Farm Ecos project, which is nearing completion at the moment, and we have some outputs from this coming out in the, this year and, and next year. But on the HNV side, the work is going to continue with this new uh, uh, Department of Agriculture funded project with partners in UCD and Chagas as well. We'll be continuing, but we'll also be looking here in more detail at this new project and how this interacts with high nature value forests, bringing this into the work, because it's very similar to agriculture. Forest areas need to supply multiple ecosystem services. So I'm just taking this opportunity today to, we're going to launch the, the project website. There's more details on the project website of, of this project. We don't have time to go into it today, but just to illustrate that the research work will be continuing. We've continued to develop this work also. So moving to the basically policy and practice side, in an Irish context, we have high nature value farmland delineated. We know where it is. We've characterized it. And now also <clears throat> we have a handle on its importance for the delivery of a range of ecosystem services. However, where are we when it comes to implementation of policy to support high nature value farmlands and the practicalities of securing viable high nature value farming systems? So central to the development and implementation of the high nature value concept in Ireland has been the work of the European Forum of Nature Conservation and Pastoralism with the support of the Heritage Council uh, for the last 20, 20 years. Work really kick-started in Ireland with a conference in Ennestimen in 2000. This was part of a series of European conferences on high nature value farmland that were organized by the European uh, Forum. And their work over the last uh, 20 years has really focused on awareness raising. So identifying the threats, opportunities, and practical solutions for, for high nature value farmland. We've concentrated on a lot of work on trying to network and capacity building, building a range of local community partnerships around the country, working on a range of projects, including working towards the development of a number of European innovation partnerships or, or locally led uh, projects. Within this work as well, we've concentrated a lot on translating the, the HNV concept into practical policy uh, 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 recommendations. So we've put in, for example, in the current CAP cycle in 2020, 
11, 12 and 13, we worked with a lot of partners to formulate formal uh, responses to call for submissions on the Rural Development Programme. We advocated for more targeted results-based payment systems, and we also put in proposals for pilot projects uh, using cooperation articles to, that led to the European Innovation Partnership uh, initiatives. And overall, our aim within this programme is to ensure that high nature value farmland in Ireland receives workable, appropriately funded CAP supports within a set of complementary, well-designed uh, measures. Much of the work we concentrated on, particularly in the last 10 years, has been on to dem demonstration and pilot projects. We have been focused on testing and developing results-based payment schemes, taking the lessons really from the, the Burren programme and trying to apply them elsewhere and see where they work in diverse landscapes across the country. So in terms of these results-based payments, you're hearing a lot about them at the moment with the launch of the, the new uh, REAP scheme by the Department of Agriculture, which is testing these at a much larger national scale in preparation for the rollout of CAP in January 2023. Well, in simple terms, these are agri-environment schemes where the payments to farmers are linked directly to the delivery of results, rather than a set of actions or prescriptions expected to deliver the results, which may or may not deliver. So each field is typically scored out of 10 using scorecards in, in the Irish system. And essentially, the higher quality of the field, the, the higher uh, the, the payment level is. Essentially, we're conditions, condition scoring uh, fields, the same as we condition score animals. And the better quality, the higher the, the, the payment. In Ireland, in these pilots, we've concentrated on testing and developing the approach for a range of biodiversity targets and associated ecosystem services. So these include the habitat quality that I talked about, payment for that, water, soil, carbon, and, and pollination services. So essentially what we're trying to do here is put a value on those high quality habitat areas of the farm that are providing the pollination services, carbon storage, and contributing to water quality and flood uh, alleviation also. We have an emerging general scorecard developed across this, and this involves essentially simple indicators that are measured in an individual uh, field, measuring the, the ecological quality, the soil quality and the, the, the hydrological quality of an area. And we try uh, through these simple scoring systems, incentivize and, and reward the provision of these multiple ecosystem services at farm and, and field level. Just to give you a, a practical example of this, this is the, the, the Pearl Muscle Project, and it's a good illustrated example of, of the overall structure. So various fields within this system here are, are scored on a score of, of one to 10. So we see even this is some fields here scoring very highly, some that are uh, maybe focused on production that don't score as high for these services, but that's fine uh, also. This is also complemented by a whole farm assessment that identifies particular issues. So and on this farm, there are issues here around some uh, patches of, of heavy grazing and bare soil on this uh, uh, peatland parcel here. There's some issues with rhododendron or invasive species and some issues here around drainage and sediment and loss into the into the water here and also some issues around direct access to drinking uh, for drinking purposes to the animals to the river so as well as having a results-based payment scheme we complement this with supporting actions so farmers are paid to actually alleviate some of these issues as well they're supported to put in essentially the green infrastructure uh, on the farm. So putting drain blocking here or putting in sediment traps to actually reduce the sediment losses to the water, fencing off this and putting in water infrastructure. Uh, so there's drinking water supplies uh, across the, the fields as well. 
managing the, the actual bare patches on, on this area and controlling the invasive species. So farmers, we have a hybrid approach. Farmers are supported and paid to address these actions, but more importantly, they're paid for the quality of their fields. And over time, the, the quality of the farm will improve from both the a range of ecosystem services and the farm management will also improve as well. Now, up to 2019, we've very much focused on demonstration and pilot projects, basically demonstrating the art of the possible with a range of farmers and, and, and communities across the country. But in 2019, we really focused then on the policy. We were in a policy reform uh, uh, cycle working towards 2021, which became, of course, 2023. So we want to try and ensure that the opportunities and things that we've developed and work are made available more widely to farmers around the country. We started with collation the evidence base with CAP for Nature in 2019. So we collated the ecological evidence base to inform the future of CAP. This is on a website, capfornature.com. And we came up with basically from the evidence base, six simple principles that should inform the CAP. Key among them being that we need to farm for food security and this recognition that biodiversity and the health of our system uh, underpins our future food uh, security. Once we had this evidence base collated in 2020 and 21, we've concentrated on elaboration of the cap green architecture and how we can build on success of the locally adapted, these hybrid results-based payment system developed in the burn and a range of other uh, locally led EIP projects across the country. Cognizant of course of the direction of travel in Brussels uh, at, the, at the time. So this work has been undertaken by the Farming for Nature Technical Group this was a group brought together by the Heritage Council and made up of individuals involved in the various pilot projects and initiatives in previous years. We had six core considerations in our, in our work. Value for money, farm, farmer engagement and farmer centered. It must be evidence-based, integrated and simplified, basically taking into account these trade-offs and synergies that I talked about. It must be results-based and auditable and relevant to the implementation of a, a number of key EU and Irish policy directions that society want us uh, to take. We really focused on the, the green architecture uh, of the cap. So taking a look, to, closer look at this, we're similar to what's at EU level, we're working within the, the three tiers that are proposed. So we can see its foundation is enhanced baseline conditionality, in particular coupled with improved eligibility rules. In the current cycle, we see many of the most important areas for biodiversity, for nature, for carbon storage, totally undervalued or ineligible for payments. So that's the first thing that needs to be fixed. We need a points-based eco-scheme whereby all farmers participating in eco-schemes should reach a minimum target of 10% of their farm with biodiversity or nature areas producing these range of ecosystem services that also support our production system. These are not non-production areas. These are production support areas. So essentially, pillar one then secures the quantity of the green infrastructure uh, across, the, across the farm. And then in, in pillar two, we concentrate our agri-environment and climate measures so to build on this quantity and improve the quality through a range of targeted uh, streams of agri-environment things. When we're talking about streams here, we mean here programs designed for both intensive and extensive systems. And that once we're talking about two different land types or broad land types, then we can design 
bespoke measures, taking into account the local variability uh, across, the, across the country. Now, one thing just, we're nearly finished. This is the second last slide. The cap alone is not, a, uh, our, our environmental schemes for that matter, will not secure the future of, of high nature value farmland areas or make high nature value farmland systems viable on their own. Much more is required. We were involved in a European project in, in recent years called High Nature Value uh, Link Learning Innovation Network. We worked with uh, 10 learning areas across Europe, trying to understand their challenges and the innovative practices that take place and have been developed by generations of farmers uh, in these areas. We see that innovation is required in a number of, of areas. We need basically social and institutional, better essentially organized and how we work together in partnership. We need better regulation and policy, so creating an enabling environment for other innovations. In particular, we need improvement in, in products and markets, and we need to adapt farming techniques to various landscapes across Ireland and, and across Europe. Now, this what I'm showing on this slide here is uh, basically the summary of an innovation assessment that took place in, in the Burn. Now, the Burn is one of the leading HNV areas in, in Europe, and it is clear that a lot has been achieved in the area. But much more work needs to be done to realize a vision of viable high nature value farmland systems. So as you can see in this slide, we've done well on social and institutional innovations through community organizations such as Burn Bio and working partnerships between farmers, advisors and, and researchers. Uh, and then, but in some areas, we have much work to do, in particular with respect to capitalizing on the quality environment through product and market development in both food and, and tourism uh, sectors. Essentially, the results-based payment can create a market for ecosystem services, but more needs to be realized, done to realize uh, a viable high nature value farmland. We need to foster innovation across these four key areas in high nature value farmland areas. And the range of initiatives we have, such as the Burn Programme and various EIPs, have seen the emergence of these innovative partnerships working together to realize this locally adapted and results oriented solutions across the country. Together with national initiatives such as Farming for Nature, which seeks to celebrate farmers' positive work for nature and build capacity, we see this new narrative around Farming for Nature is being shaped. This highlights that Farming for Nature in high nature value farmland areas can be agriculturally, economically, and socially uh, progressive. And finally, just to, to su summarize, a lot of this work that I've gone through is, is discussed in detail in a, in a paper we produced with our colleagues there uh, this year. It's available here if any want to look at it uh, afterwards. But essentially, the main points I want to make from this 30 minutes are is that agricultural policy framework needs to enable positive action and incentivize delivery of results to combat the biodiversity and climate crisis while supporting viable high nature value farms. The solutions are developed. We need to scale these up. High nature value farmland is part of the diversity of farming landscapes in Ireland and can play a central role. It's not marginal, it's central. Targets for provision of ecosystem services, food, fiber, pollination, carbon sequestration and storage, water regulation, need to match the capacity of the land. And we need to optimize the quality of our land base accordingly to meet these future challenges. We need to empower high nature value farmlands and rural communities through capacity building and cooperation, which we have been trying to do across the country. And we need to promote societal demand and recognition for these areas and the services that they provide. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Really great presentation. A lot of positive remarks coming through from our viewers this morning. Uh, so thank you very much for that. So if you could stop sharing your screen with us, James, now we can have have a chat and uh, discuss some of the the uh, the outcomes. I think one of the slides that you showed there it was a dial uh, showing the economic, uh, I think, environmental and um, social aspects of, of farming or the outputs and how the economics only focus on uh, a very small fraction of those outputs from farming. Uh, for me, I think that's that that's probably one of the most important slides you, you shared there. What can be done uh, to uh, apart from the the policy measures and apart from the, yeah, the the payments to encourage and to incentivize farmers to uh, to to produce these other uh, really important outputs. Well, I suppose the, the policy and, and public payments are, are key, but as I said in the last slide, that's not alone won't work. We need to actually, within our e economic markets, we need to value more these other range of services. And in particular, we need to take it into account in our marketing and labelling of our projects and the value that comes back uh, to the farmer, reward them for these other ecosystem services. So the consumer needs to be made aware that different farming systems, different production practices will produce a range of, of services. And they need to be able to see this clearly in the labeling of their food. They need to be able to make clear food choices and they need to actually pay more where farmers are delivering more and delivering more services. But this requires a whole change and simplification of labeling processes. And these need to be not just uh, a marketing initiative, but have sound evidence base behind them and clear and transparency to the consumer. Now, when the, I know this is challenging and a lot of the stuff we talk about is nature is not simple. It's, it's complex, you know, so but we need to try and capture that complexity in somewhere and communicate these messages well to the, to the consumer so they can make informed choices and support the, the, the farming systems that are delivering uh, more. I know it's easy to say this, but it's a whole body of work. But we need to start working in that way as a, an agriculture industry in, in general. And I think there are some positive moves on that. But the one thing I worry about is we tend to, when we actually come up with a new way of actually paying for, for food, we tend to lump them all under the one label and say that all farms are all the same and all producing the same thing. And clearly that's not the case. You mentioned in your presentation that there are no clear policy or land use targets um, for HNV. Uh, I, 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 are you extending that to biodiversity or what, are there targets there uh, for, for uh, achieving, uh, improving the biodiversity? I think this is in general the way our, our agriculture policy is formulated uh, within a, an Irish context in general. You know, we have the, the same payment systems, the same agri-environment schemes, the same options available to farmers from the most intensive dairy areas to the most extensive upland hill areas, you know? So, so we need to have sort of differentiation in the, in the, in the policy, if that answers your, answers your, answers yeah, your question. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm trying to get even outside of schemes, um, yeah. you know, do we have a target? Uh, like, for example, there, there's a, there is a target there, I know within the agri-food uh, strategy to achieve a 10% uh, level of biodiversity at, at a farm level um is, is are there wider landscape targets there that we, we, yeah. we uh, should be looking towards 
I think that one illustrates it quite well. That sets a target for all agricultural systems, you know, and it's it's very much geared around setting a target that's 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 challenging and, and manageable for maybe the intensive system. People question whether it's manageable, but, but challenging for the intensive system. But already the extensive areas and the HMV systems, these already, in many of them, they're dominated by semi-natural vegetation. So these have more than 50% already that's high biodiversity uh, areas. So in a way, that target is irrelevant to high nature value farming. It, they exceed that by multiples of that uh, all, already, you know, and as a, but then they're not rewarded for how much they exceeded by. You know, so what would we really need there, we have a minimum target of, of 10%. Where you exceed and surpass that, we will reward and support you actually to deliver that if, you if your land has the capacity to do that. You mentioned about the, the loss of uh, semi-natural grasslands that I think 30% have been yeah. lost. What are the main drivers for that? There's a range of systems. This is really... It comes down to really a lack of understanding and a value of these, these grasslands. These would be seen traditionally, and we've been all brought up with it. These were our, our, our rough grasslands. You know, they were the ones that were only producing maybe three to, to 5,000 kg of dry matter. And we have our targets from uh, 10, grass 10 from grass 10 from Chagas, you know, 10,000 utilizable with 10 grazing periods. You know, that doesn't come, that's in that sort of a target, that, that them semi-natural grasslands look very, very poor. So they were seen as poor. They weren't seen as, as, as valuable. So there is, uh, when basically you're trying to improve your, your farming situation, you're, you're looking straight away towards maybe improving the productivity of them. So you will lose them from intensification to a certain extent. Some of them then that, that cannot be uh, intensified, you know, these then you're looking around as a farmer and you want to improve your, your, your bottom line in terms of your business. You cannot intensify it. What's your, your next option? Well, you're offered in the in the policy incentives forestry. You're told that forestry would be a, a, a solution to, to climate change. So then you look to, to plant these areas. So it's been, some of them have been planted as well. So they're lost from planting. They're lost from uh, essentially uh, intensification, but also they're lost because in many of these areas where you've got a large amount of these, because farmers aren't realizing an income from them, they have to have an off-farm job. And as a result, then the areas can be abandoned. So there's this range of, of threats, but it comes back to the simple thing is we don't value them. And until we start valuing them, we could continue to lose them. And all the policy targets in the world will do nothing for them and say, aren't they great? Aren't they lovely? Like, you know, but until they're valued within the, the system, we won't have them. So I think that's it. And I, I was shocked at that this, to be honest, because it's one of the ones that we have concentrated an awful lot of agri-environmental payments in glass, for example, on low input permanent pastures. It's the highest uptake in, in glass. And with that and in previous reps, so while we've concentrated a lot of our agri-environment schemes on them, they have still been lost over, over that uh, period. And it's the higher quality ones, the orchid rich uh, ones, the, the, the hay meadows that are very biodiverse that have been, have been lost. And I think this is where our results-based payment system, they will value and differentiate your, them. Your scoring system them. kicks in there, I guess, yes. Yeah. Auric, we have uh, really a lot of questions coming in through a lot of, uh, lot of interest stirred up by your presentation there, James. Absolutely, absolutely. And lots of praise as well. Um, we can't dish that out too easily. Um, so I guess, look, just in line with, with uh, what you mentioned there on forestry, I'm, I'm skipping ahead and I'll take the rest of them in the order that they came in. The focus of the forestry program in terms of the forestation is on mostly same land that is HNV. Can both work together 
or which is more valuable for an environment from an environmental perspective, leave-in grass or HNB or for, as HNB or forestry? Now, this, this is an important question. And this is one of the questions we're trying to answer in our uh, new uh, project, this high nature value farmland and forests. Uh, across Europe, high nature value farmlands have a large proportion of, of woodlands and forests within them. Often they're defined as high nature value farmland because a lot of woodland within, we see the dehesas and montados, which are agroforestry systems in, in Spain and Portugal. So, but I think we, in an Irish context, because of legacy issues on the forestry side, we've seen this conflict uh, arising, particularly in species rich, high quality grasslands. These should be valued, and these are very high in carbon storage, very valuable for policy. These should not be converted into uh, forestry. Other areas that maybe are, are, are semi-improved or maybe not the highest quality for an environmental perspective, depending on how you design your actual uh, forestry system, you can actually improve the production potential fiber from, from these areas and while also improving the environmental quality. And within our, uh, we can design what we I would term high nature value forests. So the same as in, uh, a high nature value farmland. You could have improved agricultural grasslands in certain parts of the farm. You can have extensive semi-natural areas in other parts. You can have small pockets of, of woodland in other parts. A forestry system can be the same. You can have intensive Sitka spruce uh, plots in parts of the forest. You can have this interspersed with corridors of, of, of hedgerows, riparian zones, wetlands, some open space within the, within the woodland as well. So it all comes down, not trying to sidestep the question, it all comes down to actually how you design your forestry system, whether it actually enhance a high nature value landscape or actually be a situation that will lead to an actual deterioration in environment quality, while maybe just devoting more of the area to uh, production. So, but this is the things we're trying to tease out in this, this, this new project. And I think it's not one is good versus, versus one, is, one is bad. It's how we actually design our forestry and farming systems to maximize the benefits. And it comes down to when you walk onto an individual farm, you assess the, the farm, you assess the land area, and is it best devoted to uh, food and fiber production? Is it best supported in, in supporting services? Is it best, uh, and does society need it more for carbon storage and biodiversity, for example? Okay, I'm um, going back to Mark's first question. Uh, you said that farmers need to be rewarded for what they deliver and the services that are provided and how the different land services are, are delivered and that needs to come from the consumer and labeling needs to change and so on. Um, whose responsibility is that to make that happen? Because we've heard it from lots of different people that the farmer needs to get the information or get rewarded for what's been delivered. Who, who does that fall down to, to change the labeling and get the information out to consumers? Everybody that is involved in the agricultural sector plus the consumers who eat food. So th this is, but this has to be led by, the, by the, the agricultural sector in general. And this involves the whole food chain. So farmers, advisors, researchers, the industry need to work together to validate and verify uh, systems that will work for the farmer in developing improved incomes and a, a greater income to them, but also will work in terms of communicating to the consumer and basically secure markets for the future where we have a more environmentally aware and conscious consumer, uh, both nationally and globally. So uh, not trying to sidestep the issue, but I think this is what's happening in Magic. We see more partnerships, projects like the Zero Carbon Project in, in, the, in the Southwest, where they're 
these multi-actors, we see the researchers, we see the advisors, we see the farmers and we see the industry coming together to come up with solutions together. I think that's where we've seen this everywhere, where we have a problem. We know we have an issue. That's the first thing we have to agree on, is that we have problems, we have challenges, and then we can work together on it. But since the industry are the are set up to do this, they're the ones that have the multi-million euro money dependent on this, they should be the ones that should be taking the lead and have the resources to take the, the lead on this as part of their corporate social responsibility as well. Okay, the clock is ticking and we have about 20 questions yeah. to get through. So has the BSBI, the major botanical recording organization in Ireland, been included in any meaningful level in the evidence gathering stage where the species and phytosociological context and habitat types being included in leading to an understanding the reasons for the collapse of the really rare species? The amount of space occupied by these critically endangered species is very low. HNV is very easy to become confused because if because it may have an ecosystem service function with sites where the rare species are so challenged that they never get recognized at broad brush level some of that's a comment but a quick response yeah no through the a lot of the information that comes from the citizen science work of organizations like the the bsbi both professional and volunteer recorders within these various organizations are collated now within the the biodiversity uh, data uh, center. And when we're doing a lot of our work, we are actually cognizant of the data that's collected through these various projects and collated within the biodiversity data center. This informs our our targeting of of support and design of of measures as well. And obviously where these very rare and endangered species occur within locally uh, targeted uh, projects and locally adapted projects, we have the flexibility to design specific bespoke measures for these particular sites. So, of course, we're very much aware of this, and this comes through, it might be visible to some of the the members within this organization, but as they feed their information into the biodiversity data center, then it's available for wider analysis and informing. So, but there needs to be a lot more work done on that. Okay, I'm gonna give you two together now, just to speed things up a bit. So this person obviously knows you. Hi, James, great presentation. What's the crack with Commonage? Um, seriously, what obstacles and opportunities present in the context of managing H- H- management of HNV commonage land? And then a similar question, are you analysing agroecological based ag systems, agroforestry and perma- permaculture? Yeah, I suppose since uh, we have over uh, 300,000 hectares of actually managed uh, common land within the, the 1.5 million hectares of HNV in the country, We've done a lot of work, as this person knows, with commonages over the last uh, 10 years with, with some successes, but not translated into the design of the, of the schemes. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the last uh, five to six years, in particular with a number of European innovation partnership projects in the Black Stairs, there's ongoing work in Wicklow, Connemara, Ainashoan, uh, Kerry and other upland areas. And from them, I'm confident now that we have a workable system uh, for commonages where we can implement this results-based payment, support uh, commonage groups and management of these areas to actually restore these areas and perf- uh, the farming activities, make them and make them viable on these areas. If we can uh, uh, work within with the Department of Agriculture in the next two to three to four weeks in particular, and as it comes to public consultation to make the cap work for these areas. I'm optimistic at the moment, but I might be, depending on how the meetings go in the next few weeks, I might be pessimistic again in four weeks' time. But I think we can make these work. OK, 
keep the, keep the optimism. It's better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what role uh, does the HNV areas, what can they play in maintaining and improving water quality? And are there detailed HNV maps down to a field level? Uh, they're not down to uh, a field level at the, at the moment. When we have actually a national habitat map that's been produced by the OSI and EPA at the moment, which will have mapped basically habitats at field level, then we'll be able to run the model and have maps of HNV farmland at, at, at essentially a field uh, uh, scale. But in terms of water quality, these general areas are generally higher in water quality. They, they are home to some of the most pristine uh, water catchments in, in Western Europe. But there are issues. They are deteriorating in water quality because of inappropriate land use, intensification where it's not having the capacity to intensify, forestry where it hasn't got the capacity to take uh, intensive forest for many of this legacy, of course. So I think ma managing these when we're doing our results-based payments, we're looking at improving water and nature and climate uh, targets. So I think they have a central role in particular, in securing the future of some of the most pristine waters and lakes and rivers and in, in Western Europe, a key role to play, I think, there. Yeah. Okay, still five minutes to go. Is control of nutrient input a factor in scoring system for the fields? Yes, uh, in terms of, particularly with the, the Pearl Muscle Project, where there is uh, obviously targets for that program in the, the, the rivers in terms of in, ensuring that the, the water quality is pristine in terms of sediment load and nutrient inputs as well. There are, within the road space payment system, we have a whole farm scoring system that actually looks at the risk of nutrient and sediment export that takes into account the slurry spread lands, for example, to see if there's adequate spread lands for the amount of volumes of, of slurry produced and the, the nutrient inputs on a farm. So even within these areas, we have within the farms, some areas devoted to relatively intensive production, which are needed to support the overall uh, food production system on the farm as a whole. So there is need for nutrient management planning within that, and that's incorporated into the design of uh, some of the, the newer uh, schemes. James, we have, uh, James, we have a question in relation to carbon farming. And yeah. uh, do you think that there's a, enough of a connection there that carbon farming would help to rectify the disconnect between uh, that, not, that the fact that there's no financial reward for HNV lands and large financial reward for low nature value lands? I guess there's, yeah. is there a connection there also? I think we had uh, Maria Long there speaking about semi-natural grasslands and their carbon capture potential. Uh, that was quite impressive, if I yeah. recall correctly. Yeah, the, the carbon stored in these semi-natural grasslands is uh, an order of magnitude, maybe twice that in the improved agricultural grassland system, what's stored currently. Now, a lot of that has been accumulated over decades and, and centuries. So it's very important that that isn't released to the atmosphere and that them stores are, are, are protected. Uh, within this, I don't like to actually focus on one service over the other. And in a lot of our scoring systems, we have incorporated where they're high for nature. We also uh, score them in terms of their risk of carbon leakage or, or loss from, from the system and how much potential there is for carbon sequestration. So I very much prefer these to be done in a more holistic that the, the quality of the ecosystem and of course uh, in the modeling that we've been doing where there is a system that's in good condition from uh, a nature value it's also in good condition in terms of storing and sequestering carbon but i do think there is a real role for basically carbon budgeting and this carbon farming to justify and maintain these public payments within this within the system if that makes that makes sense but 
I think there could be a risk because there is trade-offs between carbon, biodiversity and, and food production. If you concentrate on one service only, you will have consequences. I don't want us to fall into the trap. We concentrated overly on just production in, in the past. We cannot now switch all of a sudden and concentrate overly on carbon because it will lead to some of the same issues. We need to basically uh, produce both the, the, the carbon storage, carbon uh, climate mitigation, the, the production services, and the, the nature value and the associated services in a more integrated uh, system. So would you be in favour of a land use plan, uh, James, for the country? 100%. Like if we don't have a, a, a land use strategy, like, you know, we're just shooting uh, in, in the dark on this in terms of our, our, our planning, you know. And uh, I think we know there is going to be trade-offs. There is going to be uh, uh, hard questions asked in a, in a land use plan. And that's why we don't have one. You know, so it's because we haven't got the the the, the essentially the, the political will or bravery to pursue this and have this uh, conversation. You know, There's, but I would much more prefer to have this conversation. We're now before we were in a crisis. We're now in multiple crises. You know, so it's even though if we don't want to recognise ourselves, you know, that it's not a good time for, for for planning. But we need to get on with it. You know, and get on with it uh, quickly. Time for one more, Mark. I think so. Yep. One issue in relation to fencing uh, of upland natural land, planning permission is required from the county council and in consultation with the NPWS. The reason given that the fencing affects the flight paths of birds and obviously fences are only three to four foot high. If obviously the fences don't go up, then the land isn't going to be farmed and there's going to be scrub grown, which may be more than three or four foot high. So that's the question is how do you kind of have a balance in that? And a second question that came in, which is similar, what is the risk when equating abandonment with overmanagement as equally harmful, the valuable and increasing rare wildlife habitat will be destroyed. Yeah, so I suppose the, the first one on the on the fencing side, because this has come up with an issue in many of our, our local projects as well, and we've been trying to incentivize targeted management. But I think at, at a local level, when this is part of an actual uh, strategic plan uh, for an area, then we can come, come around that and we can have the, the councils involved and secure uh, planning permission in these areas. Of course, the, the wrong fence in the wrong area can lead to actually inappropriate targeting of grazing and can have consequences. So we, we need proper planning in these areas, but it can, can be done. In terms of the, and trying to get the question on the abandonment and the intensification, that's that the boat's a threat or? Yeah, I guess which one is worse in a sense. Um, so if you're if you're overly intensively farming the land um, versus the land abandonment and uh, like it's striking a balance between farming it correctly and um, the impact of land abandonment. It depends on the context you're in here, you know, so there's. Uh... If, if land has a capacity without environmental uh, harm to be intensified, then it's not much of a, of a risk, you know? So that if uh, land is, uh, has essentially, uh, can it be intensified, then abandonment is, is a big risk. So I think both of them are, are equally as bad, you know, if they're applied in the, in the, in the wrong context, you know? So that's, that's, it's not, not a simple one. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Um... I know that this is not a simple uh, area and it does require uh, a good bit of teasing out. Uh, but James, thank you so much for a really excellent presentation and, uh, and, and uh, really excellent responses to those questions because there were some few tough ones thrown in there. Uh, Parik, thanks so much for helping with the questions. Um, well, Mark, if you wouldn't mind just commenting, we've won there on slides and if the presentations are available, yes, you can yes, make a comment on the recording being available and so on. 
Absolutely, yeah. Just remind everyone that the, the presentation from James's presentation will be available on our website as well as recording of today's webinar. So uh, do uh, go along to the Chagas website and just click on webinars up in the top right hand corner and that will bring you straight to, to uh, the signpost webinar series. And also a reminder that uh, the, the webinar is available as a podcast. So if you don't get a chance to uh, view uh, the uh, podcast itself or the webinar, you can tune in and uh, download as a podcast. So with that, I just want to say thanks to our production team, Andy Boland and uh, Vaughn Maher and Pat Murphy. And uh, we'll be talking to you next week. And we'll be talking about protecting dung beetles while managing parasites. We'll be joined by uh, Bruce Thompson, who's a dairy farmer uh, down near Port Leash. He'll be telling us all about that. So until next week, uh, we hope you enjoy uh, the fine weather and uh, stay safe. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.